On November 12, violence escalated in Gaza after the Israeli occupation assassinated Baha Abu Ata and his wife Asma Abu Ata. Many in the media reported this escalation as a start of a new round of violence in Gaza. But in reality, deadly violence by the Israeli occupation military against Palestinians in Gaza never actually ends to report that it is starting over. According to Agence Media Palestine, from January to September 2019, the Israeli army invaded Gaza at least 54 times and did many air raids. They also killed 70 Palestinians in Gaza and injured 11,000. Even before that, if we start counting since the Gazans started to peacefully protest, protest weekly since the beginning of 2018 after the Great March of Return, if we remember, it is reported that the Israeli military killed 320 Palestinians in Gaza and injured 36,000 more. The biggest attack on Gaza was in 2014 when the Israeli military managed to kill over 2,200 Palestinians in Gaza, 500 of them were children. This never-ending deadly violence of the Israeli military, the Israeli occupation and the blockade in Gaza is a context that is rarely talked about in mainstream media, even during escalation periods like the one that happened last week. Instead, as usual, it is described as a conflict between two equals instead of a violent and deadly oppression by an occupation army. Some of our politicians are even worse than the media. Some go as far as repeating basic and cliches, talking point of the apartheid state. And if you were thinking I'm talking about the conservative politicians or the liberal cons- uh, liberal politicians in Canada, think again. We have, for example, Randall Garrison, who's an NDP member of parliament. He tweeted on November 12, and I'm quoting, Islamic Jihad's launching of rockets at civilian targets in Israel for hours on end from behind civilian shields in in Gaza is terrorism and constitutes war crimes. Full stop, no need for qualifications, comparisons or balance, just condemnation, that's all that's required. Now, this is a very passionate pro-apartheid and pro-occupation stance from an NDP MP. Zahia al-Masri, who's also an NDP member, and she's a former NDP candidate during the last federal election that took place in Canada in October. She is Palestinian-Canadian herself, and she responded to Randall's tweet by saying, Dear fellow ndp please get informed before posting your tweets. We stand for justice and justice, and we, NDP, make the distinction between the aggressor and the victim. Condemnation is required based on international law and UN resolutions. Hashtag shame, hashtag Gaza under attack. Bruce Katz from Palestinian and Jewish Unity also responded to Randall with an email that starts by saying, having been to Israel and occupied Palestine, Having seen the brutality of the illegal occupation and suffocating apartheid system under which the Palestinians are forced to live, having observed with disgust the complicity of too many politicians such as yourself with Israel's systemic dehumanization of of Palestinian society, your outrageous whitewashing of what amounts to Israel's war crimes against Gaza is quite simply beneath contempt. So to understand what is happening in Gaza right now, with me on the phone from occupied Ramallah, George Rishmawi. George is the director of the Palestinian Center for Rapprochement Between People. He's also the manager of IMEMC, which stands for International Media, International Middle East Media Center. So thank you, George, for mm-hmm. joining me today on Skype. 
Thank you, Selson, for having me. It's a pleasure. So, um, as I mentioned in this intro, uh, the latest escalation started on November 12 after the assassination of Baha Abul Atta. During an air raid mm-hmm. at his home, the raid also killed his wife, mm-hmm. Asma Muhammad Hassan Abul Atta, mm-hmm. and injured many others. So, can you talk to us about first, first who is Baha Abul Atta? How was he assassinated? Why he was targeted? Well, uh, why he was targeted is, um, is a complicated issue, but, uh, you know, we had some reports that he was granted amnesty uh, a while ago, not really long time ago. Therefore, he uh, was like, you know, moving freely uh, at, at the time before he was uh, more like in his hideouts. Um, <clears throat> he's a, a leader in the uh, Islamic Jihad movement. Islamic Jihad movement has been uh, part of the uh, Palestinian resistance in Gaza mainly, uh, together with the uh, other, you know, resistant factions in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. The question about why he was targeted is really more important, uh, because, you know, at, at some point, Israel, of course, always justifies their attacks of, you know, trying to attack terrorists or whatever. However, if we look at the political game that is really being played in, in, the, in the area, these, uh, these uh, areas, uh, I mean, this time, especially with the failure of the Israeli uh, parliament to form a government for the second time, gives us a lot of answers for this uh, kind of attack, which later escalated to and did to include more civilians and more Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. Uh, the only way, probably, uh, Netanyahu was able to stop the opposition from forming a government was to wage war against people in Gaza. And uh, this actually is terrible thing that's happening, that Palestinians are a tool among uh, in the hands at the hands of the Israelis, play with them for their own political games. This is like more, much worse than apartheid, much worse than all the settlements that they are doing, building in the West Bank. And yet we get the U.S. Secretary of State, state coming to the public and telling people that the settlements are not uh, illegal, not against the international law. So this is the game. This is the game we are in now. Everything is being done on the expense of Palestinian lives. Uh, being killed, being trapped in the Gaza Strip for the past 13 years, and nobody is actually questioning Israel or holding them accountable for what they are doing. So you mentioned that uh, possibly the internal political dynamic in Israel is what is maybe behind this later attacks. Many people mm-hmm. also wonder the same thing. Gideon Levy also wrote an article, uh, it was called Killing Islamic Jihad Leader Got Israel Nothing, So Why Do It? Many seems to be in agreement that the, this was a more a political calculation by Benjamin mm-hmm. Netanyahu. Just to remind our listeners, so as you mentioned, Benjamin Netanyahu failed to form a government after the election. So right now, it's his opponent, Benny Gantz, who's trying to uh, form an election, uh, sorry, form a government. He needs to have a coalition with other parties to form a government in Israel. Um, one party cannot form a government. They never have enough seats and votes in the election to be able to form a government. So for them to form a government, mm-hmm. they have to form a coalition with other parties. And Benjamin Netanyahu failed to com- uh, to convince other parties to join him. So now it's up to Benny Gantz, 
who is his opponent to form the government. Um, I guess my question is, and, and he uh, seems and he seems to be failing as well. And I think the Israelis are uh, getting ready for a third election soon. <laughs> So th- that's very interesting. And I guess that's from the Israeli uh, perspective. But from a Palestinian perspective, I guess my question, do Palestinians even mm-hmm. care who is going to be the prime minister? Is Benny Gantz better? The, well, this is thank you for this question. It's, it's really very important. We do not think that any difference in the characters who is leading office in Israel will make a change uh, for the Palestinians. The problem is, what, of course, we cannot ignore the, the uh, entirely ignore the Israeli elections because it gives us indications and in, as an indicator for what, where is, uh, or where does the, the uh, you know the Israeli society go? Where they are they going now? They are going more to the right. Every time we look at the Israeli elections, to win elections, you have to be to the right to the current prime minister. So Benny Gantz was trying to be on the, to the right of Netanyahu, not to be leftist, not to look more like moderate or more uh, liberal or more progressive. It's actually to be more radical and more right wing. This is the way you win in Israel nowadays. So if we compare Netanyahu with Sharon, we we always thought that Sharon will be the worst leader that Israel have for us as Palestinians. Mm-hmm. And then we find Netanyahu to his right and then others to his right, Lieberman to his right. So everyone wants to be to the right of the current prime minister to win elections in Israel, which shows more extremism in the Israeli society. Uh, to go back to what I said before, yes, we, it doesn't matter who is prime minister, Gantz or, or Lieberman or Netanyahu. It's the same, the, the same, you know, two sides of the same coin. Nothing will change for us. But as I said, it shows us it's an indicator about the, uh, the where the polarity in the society. There is no left wing in Israel now. Progressive parties are very minimal, very weak. Only few people who are anarchists or, you know, some of the, the like uh, small movements and small groups who are actually uh, supporting Palestinian rights or at least supporting just peace in Israel. Few people. But the mainstream is going more further to the right every now and then. Mm-hmm. So after the assassination of Baha Abul Atta, as you mentioned, it two days of deadly raids started by Israel. Can you talk to us what happened after the assassination, how the Islamic Jihad reacted and how the Israeli army also reacted? Mm-hmm. Well, of course, the Islamic Jihad did not uh, sit still after the assassination of one of their leaders and they uh, fired back at Israel with uh, some of the some rockets from the Gaza Strip, regardless of the number. I mean, we have to look at the casualties. What happened there? What happened in Israel? Why? Uh, what are the casualties on both sides? I don't think even, you know, uh, that firing rockets uh, from the Gaza Strip will really help. Uh, it backfires anyway. It uh, gives Israel all, you know, different... Uh, excuses to do more and yet as you said earlier I mean it did not really uh, achieve anything I mean Israel made this attack initiated this uh, offensive and then you know reached it uh, and it stopped now it might start again later on so this gives you also enough reason to ask many questions again about why uh, this is happening 
So there has been strikes. Palestinians re- reacted. No, no, this is a natural reaction. And then we come to talk about uh, right of self-defense. And, of course, everybody is giving Israel the right to self-defense at a time where Israel is actually the occupying force. And it's uh, that people want to give Israel the right to defense, defend, defend itself while it's occupying a Palestinian territory and defend itself from the Palestinians who are resisting the occupation. It doesn't make any sense. And there is no point also, as some of the commentators uh, in previous uh, reporting were reading, that, uh, that you cannot equalize between the victim and the victimizer. They are different. They are different levels. We are on a different level from the Israelis when it comes to uh, the level of power. Uh, we have the power of right only, and now we don't see people actually supporting the right. I'm not talking about average uh, citizens of different countries. I'm talking about governments. And as I mentioned earlier, this latest you know, statement by the American Secretary of State is a disaster. America is challenging the, the world, challenging the United Nations, challenging every uh, kind of law and international law that says that the settlements are illegal. And this is a simple, clear uh, uh, article in the Geneva Convention, uh, Article number 49, which states that the occupying force should not move its citizens from the territory to the territory or transfer parts of its own civilian population into the territory it occupies. And they have basically violated this. So we see that Israel is doing so many things and nobody is holding it, uh, the leaders accountable. So why stop do anything? Mm-hmm. So this means that there will be more attacks. There will be more reactions. And in this way, they keep this conflict ongoing. And Israel keeps, you know, testing their weapons and selling their weapons and uh, getting more rich. So it's becoming more of a profitable uh, occupation. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you later about uh, the... The, the statement by Mike Pompeo, the U.S. Uh, Secretary of State. Mm-hmm. But just to go back to what happened in Gaza, in these two days' yeah. raids, 34 Palestinians mm-hmm. were killed. This include a massacre in mm-hmm. the refugee camp of Deir el-Balah, where with a single yes, air raid, eight, pe- eight people were killed in, in a single air raid from the same family, the Sawarka family. The family yes. And five mm-hmm. of them were children aged 13, 12, 7, 3, and 2. So I guess, yes. People probably, yeah, sorry. People sometimes do not really comprehend the situation in Gaza. The the houses in Gaza are packed. First, the families are big. Uh, Probably five uh, members of the family is the smallest number, but usually it's eight or ten or even more. And the the houses are really compact. They are close to each other. So there's no way you can shell or bombard a certain area without causing damage and causing casualties. So this is always the case. If you notice the previous war in, 19, uh, in 2014 and before that in 2012 and 11 and 2009, there are always Palestinian civilian casualties because they are in these inhabited areas. And Gaza, you know, is probably one of the most populated, densely populated areas on, on, on Earth. There are about 1.8 uh, 
1.7 million Palestinians living in the Gaza Strip. That is very, very small area. Uh, I don't know how, how to measure it in, in miles, but it's in, to Americans, they, we tell them it's more, smaller than the state of Delaware. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you look at the, this density, how can you attack without killing civilians? And how can they claim that they pinpoint and, and attack between quote and quote terrorists and targeted killing? This is this is uh, false. Always uh, Palestinian casualties, and uh, these rockets or or uh, tank shells or whatever they fall in in highly dense populated area, which causes all the time causes casualties among Palestinians, deaths and injuries uh, all the time. Regardless of uh, the situation, this is the airstrikes are always deadly in the Gaza Strip. What's interesting about that, we all often talk about the Israeli army's violence and deadly violence against Palestinians. We often talk about how it doesn't discriminate not only civilians, but also even journalists and medics are even targeted. We remember how Tariq mm-hmm. Lubani, for Canadian listeners, Tariq Lubani is a doctor from Canada who often goes to Gaza to help uh, the medical staff there and hospitals. He was in Gaza uh, during the protest after the Great March of Return, and he was also shot in the leg. And it took a long time for our prime minister to even condemn that. And he's a Canadian citizen. But also, what is shocking mm-hmm. continuously to be shocking, and the example of the Sawarka family is, and this is why I asked the question: is the high number of children being killed and bombed constantly? This is like two years old and three year old. And even when we go outside of the bombing, even in West Bank, children are constantly arrested and interrogated. Of course, I mean, Palestinian children are subject to uh, unbelievable conditions. First, life, everyday life, you know, is tough for them. Uh, And then these airstrikes make it even worse. And I mean, if you think about the future of those children, or those who were killed, of course, are, are victims, but the others who are still alive, and they see that their friends or their cousins or whatever, you know, are now, you know, being killed, and uh, they grow up with that. Mm-hmm. What future is waiting them? I mean, what kind of uh, ideas they will have? They will always think about revenge. They don't forget. They don't, it's not easy to forget when you see this, these views, you know, of uh, people you know, sleeping in their house or just being in their house and they get bombarded and then they are, you know, shattered everywhere uh, all of a sudden and their house is gone and everything is gone and they are just, you know, dead bodies. What kind of future is waiting for our children and how can they be, you know, uh, normal citizens? This is difficult. Mm-hmm. It's not only in Gaza, in the West Bank, but it's in Gaza, it's more intense because of the uh, the siege and the lack of services and uh, this conflict between Fatah and Hamas and all these kind of things. So we are very much concerned and worried about the future of our children, How what is going to happen to them, what kind of mentality they will have when they become the leaders of the society at some point after 20 years, 30 years, and we think that the occupation will not be over in 20 or 30 years because it requires more uh, work actually and uh, more international support and international support that we do not see in terms of governments. As you mentioned, you know, the Canadian prime minister took him some time to just condemn an attack on a Canadian citizen. Mm -hmm. We heard, you know, probably you heard a few days ago about Moaz 
uh, Amarna, who's a journalist who was shot in his eye with a plastic or a metal bullet, and he lost his eye. Mm-hmm. So also journalists are not safe, although he was wearing, you know, this vest which ha- which says press. And he, of course, he's not the first journalist to be wounded or killed uh, by the Israeli military. How about uh, Hamas in this interaction with Islamic Jihad and this bombing of uh, Gaza? Did we hear any anything from Hamas or did they react militarily? Hamas did not uh, actually... Uh, did not actually join the fight uh, in these few days that happened, you know, with this uh, unrest. And uh, we heard some reports about uh, one of the leaders of uh, Hamas, uh, Mahmoud Zahar, who was um, not welcomed at the morning house of Abu Atta. And uh, we had some feud between his, you know, bodyguards and the people there in the in the morning house, which signals that there are, you know, issues between Hamas and Islamic Jihad. I'm not really very much aware of the details of that because nothing really is, uh, not much is written about it uh, at the moment. But apparently there is some dispute or there is some kind of a conflict between Hamas and the Islamic Jihad. They have not always been in agreement, but... Um, they they agree on uh, that they are resisting the occupation, but there are so many other things that they don't uh, agree about, actually. Mm-hmm. So after two days, uh, as you mentioned, the ceasefire was achieved. Musab al-Brim, mm-hmm. who is a spokesperson for Islamic Jihad, told the Middle East, I, mm-hmm. the occupation surrendered to the conditions of the resistance. The Palestinian resistance achieved a great victory as it has a pledge from Israel to stop its airstrikes, assassinations and using live ammunition mm-hmm. against Gaza protesters. So I guess my question, did Islamic Jihad really achieve a great victory? Are we expecting that the Israeli occupation will respect um, these conditions that uh, Musab is talking about? Well, uh, this is relative. I mean, I can see it in a way and other people will see it in a different way. I don't believe it was a victory. Uh, I think Israel wanted just you know, to know to steer things up and move things up as I started spe- talking about the, their elections and just to show that it's uh, security, we have an external threat that we have to deal with. It's the Palestinians. We should you know, try to uh, resolve our differences and try to come up with, uh, you know, uh, with a gun. This is the first time that happens in Israel that they do, you know, that they are probably moving to a third election. So I think this is how they, they, they did it. So they just moved things and uh, had a, a ceasefire agreement after a couple of days. And only Palestinian lives were the cost of all of that. So I think Islamic Jihad, it is normal for them to say that we have achieved the victory. They have to tell this to the, their supporters, their fighters. We made it in a way. So I don't think in that such kind of war there will be a victory. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is out of... Uh, out of question, in, in my point of view. Others might see it as a victory that they managed to force Israel to stop the attacks because Israel is the one who started the attacks. And they have found fierce response from the uh, Islamic Jihad. They probably were not expecting this kind of attack uh, with the, this number of rockets in just a couple of days, as if they were ready to respond. And they have always been saying that we are ready to attack if they start any attack against us. 
So uh, it could be, in a way, seen uh, as as a victory, probably partial victory. But after all, I mean, lives have been lost and houses have been demolished, and probably others were were wounded and probably became, uh, you know, disabled. So uh, I didn't see a winner in this kind of a situation. Mm-hmm. So, as you mentioned, in Israel, all politicians seem to agree when it comes to killing Palestinians. Uh, Gideon Levy Mm -hmm. writes in his article, and I'm quoting, even the hatred of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been forgotten. Yair Lapid welcomes the attack. Benny Gantz praises it as, quote, the right decision. And Amir Peretz says the most important thing is to provide complete backing to the IDF. So when it comes to Palestinian and, uh, you know, invading or attacking or occupying, the internal political uh, dynamic and rhetoric in Israel is all in agreement. So my my last exactly. question about that, um, what do you expect next now? Now after the ceasefire, has things calmed, stayed calmed as calm as it can be in Gaza? And are you guys afraid that this meant that maybe a major attack is coming or is it it was just now because of the elections? Well, I hope that there will be no more attacks on the Gaza Strip because the victims will be always the Palestinian civilians uh, who are the ones who will actually suffer because of it. Uh, I don't think in the near, like, probably not nothing before until now Israel will hold another election if they are holding, doing another elections. Uh, I don't think another escalation will uh, will happen because, again, like, what's the point? Why now we are doing that? Because we always have to question timing. Uh, I, I think Israel did uh, move things up by you know this attack, and as you could, uh, as you read these quotes, you know by the different Israeli leaders, they all welcome this attack. They all agree this is the right thing to do. And uh, again, I, I, I insist on, or like you know, try to want to remind people that again they always look at uh, an external enemy that they unify their inner front uh, by, you know, uh, keeping the Israeli public uh, aware that, or like telling them, remind them all the time, Palestinians are trying to attack us and kill us, so we have to defend ourselves. This is the, the complex that they have. So I hope I am right. I hope I'm right that there will be no more attacks at, uh, in, the, in the coming uh near future because i'm sure there will be other attacks later on look at the go back in, in time you know and look at these kind of attacks you find all the time that there is uh, a reason and every time they say we want to destroy hamas we want to uh, eliminate hamas and hamas remains there and remains uh, stronger and even gets stronger every time they attack it so uh, in terms of military uh concepts Israel loses the war every time they launch a war against uh, the Gaza Strip because the, if their target or their goal is to destroy Hamas and they fail, then it's a failure. So uh, this is the public agenda. I'm sure they have other hidden agendas uh, behind all these kind of attacks. And this time, I think it's the elections and forming the government and keeping the Israeli uh, public alert. There is an external enemy. Mm-hmm. So to end, I want to ask you about the news that just was reported yesterday. So I wanted to get your mm-hmm. um, your reaction. Mm-hmm. So just for our listeners, the U.S. State Secretary Mike Pompeo had stated on Monday that, quote, the establishment of Israeli civilian settlements in the West Bank is not per se inconsistent with international law. 
He added that calling the establishment of civilian settlements inconsistent with, inconsistent with international law hasn't worked and it hasn't advanced the cause of peace. So there was a swift reaction after this declaration. The United Nations Human Rights Office stated that, quote, a change in the policy position of one state does not modify existing international law nor its interpretation by the International Court of Justice and the United Nations Security Council. We continue to follow the long-standing position of the United Nations Israeli settlements are in breach of international law. Also, the EU foreign policy chief Federica Mogherini said in a statement, mm -hmm. the EU calls on Israel to end all settlement activity in line with its obligation as an occupying power. She was reacting to Mike Pompeo. Also, mm -hmm. Uh, reaction from Palestine, obviously, the director of the Palestinian Center for Human Rights said, I'm quoting, the U.S. is not the world's, uh, the world's moral authority on justice. It is a state that acts with impunity and in defiance to international law and should be the last to address legitimacy as it acts by the law of jungle. The U.S. political position is clearly in support of Israel, a country that occupies Palestinian territory and supports the latter's action and vi violations against Palestinian mm -hmm. people. Also, the presidential mm -hmm. spokesperson Nabil Abu Rudeines said that the announcement by the U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is null and void. And he stra stressed that the U.S. administration is not qualified or authorized to cancel the resolutions of the international legitimacy. Saeb Araikat, Secretary General of the Executive Committee of the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation, the Palestine Liberation Organization, he also commented once again with this announcement that Trump administration is demonstrating the extent to which it's threatening the international system with its unceasing attempts to replace international law with the law of the jungle. And finally, Dr. Mm -hmm. Hanal Ashrawi, a member of the executive committee of the PLO, also states Israeli settlements are a grave violation of international law, including international humanitarian law. They also constitute a war crime. According to the Rome Statute, mm -hmm. these are solid facts that the Trump and his administration cannot alter or unravel. So these are all the reactions mm -hmm. reported by IMEMC, mm -hmm. actually. So can you talk mm -hmm. to us more uh, about, you know, your reaction to this uh, statement by Mike Pompeo? Is it really dangerous or is it just being honest like when it comes to the facts on the ground the israeli government the american mm -hmm. government and even the canadian government act although their position their official position is that the settlements are illegal but in practice they really don't act as if it's uh, anything uh, any international law has been broken yeah. so is that really statement a big dangerous thing or just being honest well, it is a continuity of the um, series of violations that, you know, or recognitions that uh, the U.S. have been granting Israel, starting with uh, Jerusalem as a capital of the state of Israel, and now the settlements and, and you know what's going to happen later, which is probably the refugees. Is I mean, the United States has no legal capacity to legalize settlements. Who is the United States in terms of international law? It is uh, not uh, only a challenge to the Palestinians. The U.S. is challenging the entire world, the entire U.N., and uh, the, all the different institutions and uh, international human rights organizations. And it probably, this is uh, something that not only Palestinians and the Arabs has to have to act against. The entire world, uh, if it is a free world, 
have to agree to attack or um, I mean to to react to this uh, latest statements by Pompeo. Uh, in a way, some analysts see that this kind of statement is actually a reaction to the uh, recent uh, European Court of Justice decision to label settlement good, settlements goods, uh, you know, and the international uh, consensus. The new, uh, to renew the mandate of the United Nations Relief and Work Agency (UNRWA), it's a, so it's a, it's a challenge in a way, and uh, the U.S. is not really and the current I mean uh, what's his name Trump uh, Trump administration is not taking into consideration or like giving any kind of respect, showing any kind of respect to international law and giving Israel more support, more political support to continue to violate uh, international law. And now, probably soon, something will happen in other part of the world, and then everybody will be standing behind the international uh, law and try to defend international law. But when it comes to Israel, they make just statements. What are the moves on the ground? Comparing that to Jerusalem as capital of Israel and the statements we heard before that the U.S. has already been dealing with Jerusalem as capital of Israel, it's not entirely true. And the same applies to settlements. It's not entirely true. But if they give them this kind of uh, green light, just go, move forward. Of course, Israel does not wait for the U.S. to do more, set to build more settlements, but it will ease the pressure on Israel from the United States to uh, give them, you know, to do more work. Now, if we look at that and go back 15 years ago in 2004, what Trump is doing now is actually implementing George Bush uh, policy and letter of guarantees that was granted to Israel when Sharon was planning to withdraw from the Gaza Strip. And if we connect these two things together, and pull the strings, you know, and connect them together, just to remind people about this kind of letter of guarantee. When Sharon was planning to withdraw from Gaza on the unilateral disengagement from the Gaza Strip, which happened in 2005, in 2004, he received the letter of guarantees from George W. Bush administration. It's a long letter, but the main four points, actually, were giving Israel guarantees that Israel will not be pressured for further negotiations with the Palestinians. This is number one. Number two, Israel will not uh, uh, be forced to remove the settlements in the West Bank, mainly the four major settlement blocks that com that compose almost 50% of the West Bank, uh, currently occupy 50%, almost 50% of the West Bank. The third point, no return to the 1967 borders, and fourth, no return to the Palestinian refugees unless to a Palestinian state. This letter of guarantees reshaped the relation of or the role of the United States in the peace process. And if I were the Palestinian Authority at that time, I would immediately declare that we no longer commit to Oslo agreement and no longer commit to the U.S. as a sponsor of the peace process and mediator, etc., etc., and probably dissolve the Palestinian Authority and ask for a UN United Nations you know, intervention in that. But nothing happened uh, at that time. 
So when we see now that the United States is recognizing Israel, Jerusalem as capital of Israel, then they are implementing that policy. When they recognize the settlements as a legal entity of Israel, then again, they are implementing this letter of agreement. So it has changed since that time, but it was not really implemented and uh, public. So the U.S. have been violating the international law since a very long time, and Israel has been doing that with with American coverage and uh, all other you know countries that supported, included including Canada, of course. So it's really confusing, but this is reality. And unfortunately, we do not see the reaction that we should see. And when they did uh, Jerusalem thing, when they announced Jerusalem as capital of Israel, a couple of days of protests, and that's it. And now, why wouldn't they do more if nothing will happen? Mm-hmm. This is in simple words, I think, what I what I see from... Uh, this statement, and I don't see any reason why the U.S. will not make more statements and Israel will not really take more measures against Palestinians as long as no one is telling them to stop. Mm-hmm. With me on the phone from Occupied West Bank, George Rishmawi. George is the director of the Palestinian Center for Rapprochement Between People, and he is the manager of IMEMC, which is the International Middle East Media Center. We were talking about uh, the latest escalation in Gaza that took place last week, and also we were talking about the recent uh, statement by Mike Pompeo about uh, Israeli settlements. So uh, thank you very much, George, uh, for joining me today. My name is Sausan Kadura, and you are listening to Under the Olive Tree.